0: And we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. This is going to be a really fun episode because we're going to explore the dark and seedy underground of professional card counting. And we're talking with a man who did this for a living. Josh the Axeman Axelred who counted cards uh, for blackjack professionally in the early 2000s and chronicled his adventures doing this across the country, making hundreds of thousands of dollars in an amazing book called Repeat Until Rich, a card counter chronicles the blackjack wars. And as you know, if you're a regular listener to the show, I love the Wild West. This is kind of where the figure of the American gambler who kind of roams from town to town, making his living that way, uh, that's kind of where the mystique kind of came from. But there's a guy, we, we, we kind of explored the history of gambling and learned about Edward Thorpe, who wrote a book called Beat the Dealer, which using analytics and math and statistics figured out how you could count cards and actually gain an advantage in casinos and this became very popular and it's you know with these rules that Josh kind of made his fortune so to speak and this is just an incredible world obviously I've been fascinated with it for a long time my grandparents taught me how to play poker early on and sure it was just for pennies and peanuts but I always wanted to have more pennies and peanuts than anyone else at the table it never happened Uh, I'm not a particularly good poker player, but I love the poker boom, love watching it on television, been fascinated with it, and I feel like I'm going to get this one day. I don't think that day is today, uh, but I'm going to learn more about this with Josh Axelrad. Josh, thanks for being on the show today. So let let me ask you this right off the bat, because this is the important stuff here. Um, Which nickname do you prefer? Because you go by The Axe, you go by Mac, (laughs) you go by Mr. Axe. Um, I mean, these are all incredibly cool names. Uh, I'd like to call you Axel, if possible, because no one else has done that. And I bet even your mom calls you the Axe, because that is like the best nickname in the world.
1: Um, I can't persuade her to do that, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> That's okay.
1: It, it is, embrace that and continue to use it to this day. Um, but I, I certainly enjoy it. I mean, Josh is, Josh is the most common um, but whatever, whatever you find most entertaining,
0: I'm, I'm happy to roll. With you. Okay, and people still call you Josh, really? Indeed. <laughs> there's no way. There's no way with a name like Josh Axelrad that I would ever call you, ever call you Josh. i just uh, unless you insist upon it and hold the interview hostage. There's no way I'm calling you Josh with a cool name like that. There's so many permutations. You know what I mean? Uh, indeed. And I imagine they called you that because you were chopping down casinos, right?
1: Well, I mean, in the end, I chopped down myself, but I, I also <laughs> chopped down casinos in my time. Um, yeah, you know, look, it was, a, it was an ideal blackjack nickname,
0: that's for sure. For sure. Now, I would be remiss if we didn't, at some point, talk about your incredibly prolific YouTube channel. Uh, I believe it's <laughs> AS. Oh, my God, you've done your homework. AS- <laughs> that's what I do, man. Uh, they call me the Analytical Mastermind. That's my real nickname. Um, it's ASDF, ASDF, right?
1: Oh, my God, you know things that I do not know at all. It, I'm, I'll look it up right now, and I can tell you. Maybe what? this is some terrible imposter. I have no idea.
0: Well, for those who want to follow along at home, um, I'm going to put links on, on the webpage, of course. Uh, so you have you have three videos up there, and they're, they're, they vary in scope, which I, I find to be very interesting. But just so you know, my f- oh, let me ask you a quick question. Is there a secret message in ASDF, or did you just kind of button mash on the left-hand side?
1: I would I would be lying if I told you I had any idea what you were talking about right now. So I, I definitely don't know the if that is what ended up being the name of my YouTube channel. Which I'm not saying that that's false. I'm saying right. I just no. I you haven't can't confirm. You can neither confirm nor okay. deny. I cannot confirm nor deny. My only utilization of YouTube in recent years, as like a person raising a child, is that I put up unlisted videos to share in a very crude fashion with you know, select dearly beloved people. And the things I put on there years ago for a broad audience, I remember something about a thermos.
0: That's my favorite video.
1: (laughs) Okay, so you, that's definitely... That yeah. is mine. I can't even find it right now.
0: Yeah, just type it's, in asdf asdf as the username, um, and I will tell you. I, I really, I, I'm. I just wanted to say I'm sorry for your loss because that thermos looked like it meant a lot to you, and <laughs> it's complete and utter corruption and destruction in your hands. I imagine must have scarred you for quite a long time. It was Aladdin, I believe. I really hope that they've improved the quality of their craftsmanship since that video hit the hit the streets.
1: It was an Aladdin. Uh, it wasn't allowed in video. They did reach out to me. I never. Um, <laughs> no, they, did, I did. They, did. they did reach out to me. They really <laughs> did respond to that. And uh, oh, I think I was on Twitter at the time. I have, you know, my relationship to social media and the Internet in general is, well, like I think most healthy people's, it's sort of complicated and full of misgivings and mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. like that. So um, sure. I go back and forth on it all.
0: Okay, no, that's fair. Well, I'll have links so people can can share and they can you know, maybe share in their <laughs> thermos wonders. experiences and give you comments. <laughs> um, now, one other thing before we get into the card counting stuff because that's really interesting, um, but I'll never get back to this if we don't talk about it now. And that is in, in the book you talk about this paranormal experience that you have with the <laughs> light. Uh, you light. Know, I do love paranormal stuff. Occasionally it's a subject on the show. Uh, what happened? What was going on there?
1: So, I mean, I can describe it. But what I actually experienced, and I've I've looked it up a little bit in the years since then, and I, I think I have more of a sense of the actual physics of the phenomenon. But okay. what is special about the Pauline Light? First of all, there, there's the context, which was that this is one of my, you know, relatively early at the time, relatively few totally solo blackjack journeys where I was on my own, um, in you know the north woods of Wisconsin slash the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, just this very remote. Part of the country and when you are a road gambler on your own like that you're invariably traveling with some amount of cash so there's this element of paranoia you have to sort of take care of yourself right. or is it possible to travel in that way is that it's not generally known um, to outsiders that you are are this sort of target uh, people don't see as they're not aware of it and so you sort of have bankroll on your person and um, in this case, I was at a, a very small tribal casino um, that had a non-random shuffle so that the, the way I was playing the game didn't look to them like um, it corresponded to card counting at all, and yet the game was unusually valuable. So I'm, I'm up there just you know, just of necessity, of, of practical and professional necessity and obligation, lying to the people who operate this casino um, my entire story of who I am and what I'm doing is false, um, basically, uh, and you know, undergoing these fairly dramatic swings in my personal bankroll because that trip is is backed by no one other than myself. Um, so it's a different experience if you grow up as I did in the team context. Your relationship to your results is a little bit attenuated because they're shared by such a large group. So. You don't, you don't feel them so immediately. So I'm having all of those experiences and getting down, being allowed to play for days on end in this place and am told repeatedly by various dealers, staff at the casino about the light, the light, how I have to see the light, how it's been on Unsolved Mysteries twice, which they keep going back to as if that really sets it apart. And it does in my mind. I mean, how many things in the world have been on Unsolved Mysteries one time? That's like enough of a credential. Like you're three miles away, but look at it if it's not quite, it must have like regular gravity or whatever. Um, And so what you experience going down to the light, I I took the directions they gave me and you, you sort of go to a specific sign that I think points the way to a campground. um, And you turn where that sign is off of a two lane highway onto a a dirt road. And the road just ends with like a, a metal barrier marking the end of it. And there's, and you can drive off to the left from that barrier to, to go to the campground at camp. Um, but at the time that I arrived, it was dark. There was nobody there. And, you know, you turn off your car and are sitting in these woods with bankroll and the vague, you know, awareness that at any point, the people you've been, um, essentially taking advantage of, I think it's an ethical way of taking advantage of people, but that's, that's a description of what I've been doing in that casino could realize who I am actually am, what I actually am about, and, and have very ill feelings towards me. So I'm in this dark place in the woods where I'm told there will be this spectacle. And indeed, after a while of sitting staring into the darkness, I saw a thing out there. I mean, it sounds ridiculous to just say this, but this is this is what you experience. You see a thing. There's a thing, like a tiny little red. I think light flashing just a little bit, like it's very it's at first it's very small. And you think it's actually it might not be a big deal. People have talked a lot about this, but it's it's just this tiny thing. But the thing is that it it, it as I observed it at least, it began to get bigger and seemed to come nearer and became this sort of glowing orb that really did very much seem to exist physically not far away from me and part of what made it seem that way is that you could see the light like it cast a glow on the ground what I really think this is now based on stuff I've read elsewhere is just one of those you know, optical things where there's another road somewhere down there and the headlights get reflected in a strange way but it doesn't look like that at all it looks like mm-hmm. a glowing orb of light that is physically near you and some of the stories that I heard about it, if there's no limit to how close to the place where you park it gets, it will go on top of cars and things like that. That didn't actually happen to me that I recall, but there were like, there were people, some of the dealers had stories of the light, like entering their vehicle and the like of an electrical charge filling the space and crazy things. like That um, that didn't happen to me, but it, it moved around and came close. And then, you know, started to recede and became this faint flashing light again and then was gone. Um, and when you go on the road looking for weird things, I mean, you, you can't really do better than
0: that. It's funny because I I love paranormal stuff. And one of the things that I've always been kind of iffy about, I was really into the ghost hunters and all that stuff back in you know the early two thousands, right around, I guess uh-huh. right around the time you were doing your whole card county thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and orbs are always a big thing and I always kind of blew them off. I was like, I'm not really into those, especially when it comes to like, you know, ethereal phenomenon, let's say. Uh, but I just recently read this book called *Skinwalker: uh, Hunt for the Skinwalker, which is about Skinwalker Ranch, this place in northern Utah written by a guy named George Knapp who's an incredible personality uh, in Las Vegas as a, as a news reporter. And they talk about orbs exactly how you're talking about it. And I just did an interview with these guys from the Navajo Nation who basically take um, like police procedurals toward paranormal cases and they handle it as if it was like a homicide case Mm -hmm. Uh, incredible guys they kind of, those two things kind of made me think twice about some of these orb stories that exist kind of independent of ghosts. And what you're describing is exactly that. It's like these orbs that exist, can send an electric charge, can move around, cast a glow on the ground. Uh, I, had, I did a little research as well, I'm sure that won't surprise you, about the Paulding Light, just because I was curious what the real phenomenon was. And as right. you mentioned, a lot of people you know say that it's a phenomenon based on cars in the distance, creating this optical illusion. And that, you know, that very well may be the case but what you experienced is not unlike a lot of the um kind of experiences that exist either around ufos or other paranormal phenomenon and i just find this stuff really interesting i don't know where it comes from i have no idea but the fact that multiple people that are credible that have no reason not no reason to tell a lie about it um just kind of makes the stories something to kind of like cock your eyebrow at Mm -hmm. you know in an interesting fashion like grab your chin like cock your eyebrow like hmm that's interesting (laughs) <laughs> you know, uh, but anyway, I want to talk about that because if we didn't, if we got knee deep into card counting, God knows where where we would end up with that. But but you know, and kind of the, the, the experience you described is really an interesting. I mean, because it, that experience is so unique to kind of what you did and what people do in the lone gambler kind of cowboy aspect of the whole thing, which you kind of it's kind of a theme throughout your book. Uh, so what, what was it about this whole world? Cause I think in your book, you mentioned that you always kind of wanted to gamble for a living. What was it about that that made that appealing to you?
1: As soon as I understood there was this actual possibility, this way that one could gamble, uh, with an edge and profitably, um, it was immediately captivating and it seemed to respond to some aspiration that was already there. I mean, I had absurd fantasies coming out of college. I still went to college, so I wasn't as as much of, you know, a zealot committed to like a derelict life that I, you know, I I didn't like skip it, which certainly as a free being I could well easily have done. Um, So I went and came out, you know, very unsure of, of how I was going to proceed and I had fantasies of like I had fantasies about stealing art, not from my own account. I thought I had this vision of being an art thief who would steal paintings. (laughs) And then from private collections that were not generally available to the public and give them to museums in exchange for some fee. I don't know how the business side was supposed to work, but it was something like
0: Robin Hood kind of
1: something like that. Yes. With a small cut for, you know, (laughs) Robin Hood to keep the whatever, to keep the Merry band going, (laughs) um, provide meals and feed the horses. I don't know. But, um, but I didn't specifically think of gambling as something that you could reasonably do um, until I first heard about blackjack stuff. and the second I heard about it, I thought, God this is this is it. like if this is real, and when I first heard about it also, it definitely seemed like it was intellectually out of my reach mm-hmm. because I am not somebody with a particular mathematical bent. Um, the people I was you know coming into contact with who were, uh, the experts on it very much were those people. They were, you know, MIT alum and um, people who, who, for whom the, these sorts of problems and, and this approach to problem solving came very naturally. And that, that was not who I was. Um, so it was it was pretty out of reach even once I was in contact with people who were doing it. But the appeal, the clarity of the appeal, was like immediate. Mm-hmm. Oh my God! If you could just be on the road with some bankroll making things happen and and pulling your living out of these dens of iniquity in a way that seems like it's a criminal underworld thing, but is in fact not only totally legal, but almost ethically like obligatory once you know how to do it. Like these bastards who run these gambling halls ought to be made to suffer for their sins. Um, Mm -hmm. So the appeal of it was, um, was on a level of like a ideal. It, It it was clear immediately on the practical level, not so much.
0: And we see practical. You mean just because it's it's difficult to do successfully, or or learning how to do it? You mean practically? Yeah, I mean at the at the time that I
1: was initially aspiring to take an MIT team checkout, their checkouts were. Uh, That's like a tryout
0: just for the people at home. That's like a tryout, right?
1: Right. It's a skills test to demonstrate your aptitude so that you can play for a team. And you know, even at the point that I was very active um, and winning hundreds of thousands of dollars as a big player from supposedly the sharpest casinos in the world, um, there, it's possible that there was never a point when I really would have passed the MIT controller test. That's their highest level aptitude test because it was, it was really demanding. And, and obviously, my, it's my opinion <laughs> this is was it, that it's, it's needlessly demanding and that um, it required mathematical aptitude that's not actually relevant in the casino to getting money out the door successfully Um, and there was you know arguably there were moments in mit history when the the team um it wasn't necessarily geared towards maximizing its own profits but just becoming an and a fun profitable hobby where people could show their intellectual chops off in this particular way
0: you know, it's funny. There's also this a documentary called Holy Rollers, which is about a Christian group um, that would do the same thing. I, I mean, it's kind of interesting because it, it does kind of feed into the Robin Hood thing. Although I imagine you didn't go back and give the money to everyone. <laughs> they stole. Well, that's from. the thing. That's, that's
1: where it all breaks down, the Robin right. Hood fantasy.
0: <laughs> we give to ourselves. We right. rob. We do that part. It's like the corporate version of, of a Robin Hood, just ripping off another corporation. Uh, and I do want to, before before we get too far, I do want to mention, the the book is called Repeat Until Rich, uh, and it's got this really interesting subtitle, which is um, the, a card counters, a professional card counters chronicle of the Blackjack Wars, uh, <laughs> which makes it sound like a history book. What were the Blackjack Wars, and, and uh, were you on the front lines?
1: Well, we, we like to believe so. I mean, certainly there's an, there's, There's a sense in which, you know, you tell these stories and and it it felt a certain way to actually be doing these things. And it felt extremely important. And in the context of like the mounting political and geopolitical and like climate problems that were uh, really getting underway at exactly that same time, it can seem very, very trivial with any kind of distance at all. But when you are there in the thick of it, um, it can seem and does seem like a very intense and very important thing on the one hand, you know, what you do as a, as a gambler, as a card counter is that you gamble reasonably and um, do math in your head and like make optimal betting decisions based on what that math tells you. Um, All of that is like pretty cut and dry, not necessarily very gritty stuff, but um, in order to be able to do that, you have to deceive casinos because despite putting billboards everywhere that say, you know, come be a winner. The only invitation that they're ever offering is to come be a sucker. (laughs) Of course. I mean, everybody knows this and it's a little absurd that I still get indignant about it after all these years, but there, there is something truly just disgusting about uh, them and, and what they do. Um, they, you know, invite people to come win and they obviously don't mean it. And if you try using reasonable and lawful, um, Clever, interesting, fun, expert techniques actually to win, you will get surrounded by security guards, treated like a criminal, um, at times abused physically or detained by casino personnel. That was a very rare experience in, in sort of my particular journey. But um, every once in a while, the security people on the other side go too far, and there can be real consequences, physical, you know, safety consequences. Um, and so that all adds this this sense of intensity and drama and of, of being involved in a, a battle and, and like in any war, there are elements of like intelligence and counterintelligence things happening. Casinos obviously circulate information about, um, us, uh, and it's, it's changed over the years the way they do that. But at the time that I was most active, it was, it was pretty rudimentary technology. They were sending faxes of photographs around, not necessarily high quality images that they were, um, that they were circulating. But nonetheless, it was important to try to get a sense of you know, whose photograph had gone out and who was likely to have received that photograph because it's a very different thing to walk into a casino that does not you know, recognize you physically and walking into a casino where you don't think they're going to recognize you physically, but actually they were just faxed a close-up photograph of your face like 20 minutes earlier. You're going to have two very different experiences <laughs> attempting to place bets in those two different
0: situations. Right. And I mean, the thing I love about the book is there are a lot. I mean, everyone, can, you know, almost anyone can write a boring book about card counting. You know, I mean, the first one beat the dealer, Edward Thorpe. Uh, is, yeah, I did a, a whole uh, podcast on the history of gambling. And, you know, we they, we talked about him and that kind of revolutionized the idea of, you know, table games and, and kind of reinvented blackjack. Uh, but anyone can write that book. But what you did is you really did chronicle your your story. Um, which is based, you know, which is basically consisting of all these individual stories that really does tell quite a, an intriguing, intriguing story. Uh, you know, it's funny because you know, not not to give away anything. The last third of the book takes like a whole right turn, um, which is which is interesting. Um, but but in in a, in a journey in and of itself. Uh, but but like the the whole card counting aspect of it, it is really did feel like a war. You know, and then you suffered PTSD. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> that's, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, it's, yeah, that's that's like, that's the book. I mean, I highly recommend it. It's, it's, it's an amazing book. Uh, and I, I got to tell you, like knowing, because you kind of did this, you know, even in, What I guess you know now that I'm old enough now, and I guess you are too, to think that you did this in a whole different era. And what I mean by that is this is all pre-9/11. Like we live in a post-9/11 world, and I hate saying that because it sounds so cliche. But you really do. Really was a whole different era because security was very different. And like you said, there's you know, faxes and everything. And it's funny because Griffin Investigations, which you talk about, which is a you know, an institution in Las Vegas, they have probably the worst website I've ever seen. Like if I was going, like honestly, if that. their marketing, I would never hire them. They, it looks like it was made right around the time you started card counting, like in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, it's really weird. And But anyway, so... Oh, yeah. there's
1: something. If, if in your
0: research, just to yeah. throw this
1: out, I realize your research is probably already done for this episode, but should it, is. Should, should it come across your radar screen at any point, there was an episode of what I think was... Dateline or 2020 one of these shows that was on at the time that I was super active as a card counter it might have been 2002 or something like this and it was about it covered Griffin and um, you know casino network information services and at one point in that episode they flashed for one second and I lo- I had like a VHS tape of this which I lost they flashed for one second like the screen that shows something called Griffin Gold which was at the time their high tech uh, you know Internet-accessible database of of do wells. Um, they flashed an image of that screen with my name on it and my griffin gold ID number, which get would here. be come useful. On. It would be useful if I were able somehow to get that information. So, should you come across that video, just anyway, uh, it's, it's in the back of my head. I would I would love to get access to my griffin gold ID number just for old time's <laughs> sake, really.
0: Um, well, I will tell you this: I will I will dedicate um, probably an hour to finding this if it is if it exists on the internet. I will find it and I will send it to you and I will post it. If not, it may be gone forever, um, and which means you could probably go and start doing this again if you wanted to. So I imagine <laughs> they don't have the facts of your face anymore. But I mean, you know, it's it's my my point is it took me a while to get to it, but my point is, you know, learning about these different the different eras in gambling. You were going at a time, you know, after the mafia was there. You know, these are they were not. They're now owned by corporations. Um, but before the era of security is kind of the sweet spot because had you been doing this, you know, 30 years beforehand, you would have been, your arms would have been broken or would, you know, whatever violent mafia means they were going to do, uh, back, getting back I guess is what, what you call it. That would have happened to you. It would have been a much different experience, I think.
1: Yeah. And I don't know that I, I would have, you know, had the, um, courage to, pursue it in that way I, I know some individuals who played the, the thing is that there are always these series of trade-offs so some things get better and other things get worse and there's kind of a continuing evolution in the spy versus spy game or cat versus mouse or whatever sure. you know ridiculous or spy versus spy yeah um so in the at the time that I was active in Russia there was a temper. there was a period which has now ended when casino you know, gambling was legal in Russia and there were games that, for reasons related to the rules that they offered, were unusually favorable to advantage players. And so if you wanted to, you could go to Russia and play with ridiculous edge. We're talking situations where you're essentially not going to have a losing week, let's say, which for a card counter is just an almost unthinkable gift from the world. There's there's a huge amount of variance in the game. You, spend, you win in the long run, and you certainly do, but the long run can take a long time to arrive. So there were these unusual opportunities in Russia, but it was also a fact that those casinos were in no way on the up and up. And although you could win at the tables, getting the money like out of the casino safely and out of the country was a whole set. I mean, that opportunity existed. If I wanted to tangle with the mob, I could have done it. I, I certainly chose not to be that brief.
0: I got to tell you, and I mean no disrespect, you don't seem like you're made of that stern stuff. I know I'm definitely not. I would not have survived that. And that's why – I mean, but that's funny because you're mentioning MIT. They're like the key card counting group. It's nerds. Nerds are beating the casinos now. That wasn't going to fly with the mafia involved, right? No no nerd is going to take down a casino in the 20s and 30s. You know what I mean? Sure. In the 20s and 30s, I mean, the, the key point for card counting is
1: 58 or whenever the first edition of Beat the Dealer came out. 60, oh, right. maybe. Uh, 62, I'm getting the dates all jangled in my mind. It was, blind, I think it was but,
0: 62 or 63.
1: Okay. So that that's when the phenomenon of this specific angle this specific game became widely known. And undoubtedly there were people who were physically brutalized unlawfully by like the sketchy proprietors of those casinos. Um, but you know there were there was even in Nevada there were still risks to casinos for doing things like that. And it wasn't like it was it happened all the time. People like Kenny Houston, for example who was active during the period, a very sort of well-known card counter who was active at probably at the time that the transition was just starting to get underway between total mob ownership and corporate ownership. Um, He was, he was aggressive and, and shameless and and not particularly afraid. And, um, you know, he was certainly dealing with some casinos that were controlled by underworld elements and it didn't seem to, Bother him or uh, affect him a great deal. There were PR consequences to them, depending on who and in what way they they attacked people. Um, there were conceivably legal consequences, and you know, at the at the end of the day, it's it's any individual card. It's it's always been this mixed thing for casinos that they haven't quite wrapped their hands around uh, their their heads around what to do with. Although I'd say they're they're maybe getting closer now than they ever have been in the past, which is basically what they're doing is eliminating blackjack altogether. Um, although they're trying mm-hmm. they're trying to make it look like they're not doing that, but they are doing it. Um but uh you know, they the actual threat of any one individual was is somewhat limited, and the marketing appeal of selling the illusion that anyone can come and beat this game was worth a lot of money. That's why the game mm-hmm. persisted for so many decades and in fact became more popular popular and more profitable for the casinos in the post Thorpe years. It's because that fantasy drew far more suckers in than it did genuine advantage players.
0: Right. Right. Well, and, you know, and it's funny because you mentioned Russia, uh, about not getting, having a difficult time getting the money out. It's funny because in a lot of the stories that you have, you know, you get busted and then you basically are like, okay, well, where's the checkout? And then they point you in the direction and then you cash your chips in and then you leave. Like it's, uh, it's just funny to me because it's not, it's not. As aggressive as that you know, obviously they they you know they pull you out, they don't let you play. But like you basically can just go and cash the chips out. You know, it's not like you have to like run out of the casino with the chips in your pocket and then cash them out later, right?
1: Well, there are times when people prefer to run out of the casino with the chips their chips in the pocket for various reasons. <laughs> but really? but yeah, oh,
0: really? generally, look,
1: it's it's the activity card counting is lawful. Um, the industry is is regulated with various levels of seriousness depending on the jurisdiction that you're in. You know, we live in, a, in, a, in more or less in a society of laws. Um, so, yeah, you know, when, when they lose, they have to suck it up and cash you out and get on with their their day. in just this, the same way that the suckers that they break and destroy on a daily basis have to kind of suck it up and go back to their hotel rooms and decide whether, you know.
0: To jump um, out a window or not. <laughs> I, I was
1: going to make that joke and I sort of pulled back from it. But, I mean, that's no, part that's of the okay. reality of, of, the, uh,
0: of, of what happens to people that way. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's funny cause you mentioned that you weren't exactly mathematically inclined. Uh, and I, I got to say from reading the book, I imagine that you kind of in a lot of ways were really lucky because you got attached to a group that was looking to expand and didn't quite have the rigorous checkout process that other groups did. So, I mean, it in, in kind of what you were like in the right place at the right time wanting to do the right thing, right? Yeah, very
1: much so. Um, and, and look, it was, it was not like it was an oversight that they had a, uh, an easier testing process that was entirely deliberate. They knew what they were doing and they, they certainly, at least at the time that they were active and some vestige of MIT was also active, there was no comparison as to who was more effective in the casinos and who was making more money and also having more fun. It was, uh, definitely the the guys I
0: ended up running with. Now, do you still talk to them, or did when you guys kind of when it disbanded? Is that was at the end? Did you guys go into the into the wind? Uh, I'm in. A, I'm in touch with a you know a good number of people who were. Oh, involved. really? Oh, okay. Yeah, guys. Okay. So, so it's kind of like being in a war together. It really was. You're like friends with the, the guys you were shared a foxhole with.
1: Yeah, I mean, when we get together, um, it, there's there's an oral tradition in blackjack. The stories that are in that book and many, 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 many others we tell and retell the last time i got together with some of those guys one person told a story about the first time she'd heard somebody else tell a story that they had just told and there was like a story about that like her memory of the first time hearing that story was itself rich with the significance of whatever was <laughs> happening on the particular blackjack trip where they you know sat around shooting the shit
0: that's so meta. <laughs> I mean, did the story change? Was was part of the story about the story? How much the original story changed from the first time <laughs> to now? Like telephone, you know. I don't remember that. I don't remember that being part of it. But undoubtedly, um, those things, uh, those happens. Sure. Every time someone catches a the fish, every far. every year they tell the story it gets an inch longer. You know. Uh, that you, speaking of stories, there's this really funny story that you tell. It's actually just a comment, but it like really struck me that enough to write it down. And you, it's this is you know so you've made the team, you're getting brought out. So you're in a car with two women, I believe, and you say you're being taken. I think you're being taken to be tested out by this group that you ended up running with. And you say you never know what to say to a woman in the absence of sexual tension, uh, which, which is just so funny because these two women were so. Like all professional, I guess, and it's funny because and I, I, have, and I was I was a dick. That's why it was funny because they were professional <laughs> and I was a young fool
1: um, who not only had that thought but wrote it down later in a book that he published. Um, yeah, thanks for thanks for broadcasting that.
0: Today. It's a funny line though because it, I mean I, I'm not I'm not saying it to call you out. I think the line was very funny because you know I, I'm the exact opposite. Like I know exactly what to say to women when there's no sexual tension, but as soon as that gets ramped up, I I, I don't know what to do. I'm you know clueless, so I just found that to be it just rang true with me um now how one of the questions that I, w- I was curious about is you know the book took you a little bit to write um i think that's the same, putting it mildly right um how uh, how long did from like you know inception to completion was that cycle
1: it was it let me actually see how many years it was such an amazing number of years i believe i set a a record and this is a matter of great shame obviously but I think I, I set a <laughs> record yeah really I, I set a record at my um agency my agent commented on one point that the runner-up was somebody who wrote like a a hundred year history of American music that was like 700 pages long and like fastidiously <laughs> researched and I was writing this sort of jovial action-packed memoir of my adventures um <laughs> So 2005 sold it. It was published five years later. So it was it was a five year process from the time the book was under contract. Um, But I was trying to learn how to write it a year before that, and you know, so about six years altogether. which in the world of literary production, is not as as totally posturous as um as I sometimes remember it as being. But a lot of that not bad at all. A lot of that was wasted time. Anyway, I, I learned I learned a couple of things.
0: No, that's I mean, it, cause I know it took a while, but I I mean, it's it's well worth it. I mean, it's it's a great it's a great book, um, and and you know you have there's a couple of I mean there's tons of great stories in it, and one I want to talk about um, before we we run out of time, uh, not that we're near that, but I, I want to make sure we get this in, is in chapter thirty one, uh, and I know this thirty one because it's my favorite number. Uh, you talk about hitting the Empress in Juliet. And that's near and dear to my heart because I grew up right down the street. It was the first casino I ever knew. When wow. I was 18 years old, I wanted to get a job there. I always had I was a fascination with casinos. They had this job where you would drive a Cushman around and basically pick up people who couldn't move around. And I presume take them to the checkout where they can cash their social security checks or whatever evil thing they wanted them to do. Uh, and I really wanted this job. So I, I'm, you know, very, t- and I remember actually one of the worst memories I have is I think the first time I gambled there, when I came out to to get my car, it was a 1986 Pontiac 6,000. I remember the car. Uh, I dropped the, st- and the starter, like the starter just wouldn't, like it, it blew in the parking lot. And I had to like call a friend to come out and we had to like fix the starter like in the parking lot. If you know anything about cars, that's. Pretty complex uh, thing to do. I definitely wasn't capable. So anyway, the Juliet, you know, Juliet Casino has a very the Empress has a near and dear <laughs> to my heart. Now you hit this because it's kind of a cool story. So tell me about it.
1: So the Empress Juliet. Now, is a, a while since I wrote the book, and a long time since these th- things happened. So well, if I give you cliff if notes
0: I'm, if you want. And then if I'm remembering, it
1: was it, was this a $40,000 win while I was pretending to be somebody of a different sexual orientation? <laughs> yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 And yeah. I guess we so, should probably talk about your, before we get into that, you should talk about your appearance at this time, because obviously the picture I'm going to put up and if people go to your, your YouTube page, which I assume that they're going to flock to, <laughs> they're going to see a very different person. Um, what did you look like when you were doing all this stuff?
1: So I started growing dreadlocks when I became a traveling road gambler because I thought that was a badass thing to to do. <laughs> so
0: and everyone um, would know you immediately.
1: <laughs> well, as it turned out, you you've you've put your finger right on the issue that was I was oblivious to. I was like, this is so cool. And even some of my, my teammates who were experienced people were like, Oh, they're never gonna think this dude's a card counter. He looks like a lunatic. Right. Um, he looks like he just found some glue in like a dumpster and inhaled it. <laughs> um, but in fact I got fired very quickly and was easily recognizable with these things sprouting out of the top of my head. I, right. I was told that they were initially described in an early Griffin, uh, flyer as small <laughs> pigtails. So that was, that was oh, wow. the, the gangster's interpretation of my
0: budding dreadlocks. They're laying yeah. small pigtails. I'm sure um, that they were trying to emasculate you a little bit there. Uh, <laughs> maybe just, so. just the hair, is my guess. No
1: pun intended. Um, so that, and they, they grew and, you know, at times I got down with them and at times it, it, they weren't particularly helpful. Um, and at the time I played the Empress, what I think I did for that particular session, I, I had and I actually still have this a little black leather cap that looks kind of like a biker cap or something with a little rim yeah. and a little metal. I watch it, movies. It I know it. the cap. I know okay. The cap. All right. And I, I left the dreadlocks on the top of my head for whatever sentimental reasons, I guess. But with the cap, you couldn't see them. They would all fit under it. And I shaved the visible part of my hair, so it looked like it was completely bald with this little cap. And I can't remember if I had a goatee at this time. I did various things with facial hair. I dyed it to make it sort of darker and more intense.
0: So you um, look like the biker from the um, from the Village People, essentially. That's exactly the look right.
1: that I was that, that I was trying to espouse. And you know, I did what I was able to bring to the table as a as a, a member of this. Jack team and as as a player who ended up you know winning a good bit as in the big player role um was not you know super mathematical finesse i was not the person who was going to devise new ways to attack uh, new casino offerings or what have you or, or run the computer simulator but um i could i could act a bit and there are some people who can just be very natural and seem like dudes who would hang out in the casino and that's not me like i don't i don't i really cannot genuinely seem like a dude or a bro who would like it but like a crazy person in some way i was able to do that in various ways so whether i seemed like i was on a lot of drugs i just tried a number of different characters and it was at least at the time that i was active a remarkably effective way to get the pit and the and management thinking about things that were like you know simply distractions and one of the simplest and it should embarrass people on the casino side it doesn't embarrass me particularly but um but i found that in the sort of you know bro culture of of the gaming world coming off as somebody with a lot of money who was flamboyantly you know effeminate and possibly of a different sexual orientation from what my sexual orientation actually is would be very distracting to the other side, they would just get really worked up about how to deal with this person, how to make this person feel welcome when they didn't like know what necessarily would float his boat or, or whatever. Um, and so I was doing that in Juliet. And it was ridiculously effective. I mean, this was a time when all the people involved in the play were like on relatively recent flyers. We were the most active blackjack team in the country where we, we were well known. And we had showed up in Joliet, Illinois on a small boats. Um, and I was coming into the middle of sh- the shoe. Uh, I'm sure I was betting cable Mac, whatever it was. There. I don't remember the number, you know, if we were reasonably lucky, it might've been a $3,000 Mac. Those, those were big bets. They're, they're certainly going to um, get attention. And they were all looking, and um, they let the play go down. And, and at a certain point, the casino manager was trying to figure out ways to like comp me or like, you know, further get me into his good graces so that I would be a delighted, happy customer. And I, I requested that he direct me to a gay nightclub. I didn't say that explicitly, but I was like, you know, I described what I where I wanted to hang out, you know, later in the evening, my gambling was more men than women, I believe is how you described it. Okay, sure. So more, so something like this. And, um, and he just took that as his mission when he should have been on the phone with surveillance, when he should have been like observing the fact that, you know, I only came in mid shoe with like two by a thousand up to two by 3000 and never bet off the top and was actually only betting into positive counts when he could have been solving this very elementary problem of um, the way in which his game might be being exploited. Instead, he was running around the casino trying to find some you know, employee who was either gay or familiar with like the local gay community who could direct me to what I was looking for. And that, that was delightful and it provided us with ample gambling time. It came to a head when he actually brought me over all excited and introduced me to this employee who was physically, and this part I, I genuinely regret, I did not foresee this outcome at all. But he he had basically been so avid in his commitment to find somebody who could provide this information that I don't know if it was a matter of, you know, working the employee grapevine until somebody was like, oh, actually, you know, Sylvester is or something. But this employee who was, I think, on on a crafts table was like visibly, like deeply, like dismayed and alarmed and had essentially just been outed in his in his workplace at a, right. at a time, not of his choosing. So I, I absolutely <laughs> regret that. And the outcome for that person is not, you know, it was a horrible collateral damage. Um, but he did give me the name of a club that, you know, um, so the, the, and this provided more gambling time and then, um, and, uh, and that was it. Uh, they they blew out the session. It was a it was a hell of a result. Like forty thousand was just under forty thousand dollars. It was thirty five dollars
0: <laughs> short of forty thousand. It, it, right?
1: it was. That's right. I remember. Yeah, um, which is crazy. To after that and, and and mentioning that it was so close to that round number. And uh, yeah, yeah, uh, I got very close. I didn't quite get to forty at, at Juliet, but it definitely rounds to.
0: Well, I mean, it's it's just it's such a great story, and I mean, it's it's perfect for. I mean, look, I grew up there during this time, so it's not exactly um the most friendly to to non-traditional anything really um sure. yeah. uh, so it is a perfect cover and you know i say screw 'em for for being so preoccupied with that you know i mean uh, i'm with you on your mission here i, th- I think it was I don't have a lot of casinos who listen to the show, so <laughs> <laughs> at least I hope. Uh, so so let's talk about, um, you know, without getting into too much detail, because I actually found the whole process of card counting, because as you mentioned, you know, we started off saying that, you know, the lone gambler. But, but you know, as you talk about, that's not really where people make a lot of money. You can't really be um, a big professional blackjack counter doing all this stuff. So you have to go in teams. And the way the team structure it's very strange, uh, you know. I mean, like, like as you explained it, I I got it, and I guess it makes sense. And you know, people smarter than I have you know, figured out how this whole thing works. But how how was it structured? Like, like what was the what was the team who was involved and what did they do?
1: Well, there were the, the sort of founders or masterminds who um, you know had been originally active card counters in a much smaller group and and decided to expand. And um, the way that they did that was to uh, recruit sort of socially via friends. It's a strange enterprise because um, trust is indispensable. You're handing physical cash to people, telling them to go into a casino with it and come back and tell you what happened. in a, <laughs> in a, in a context where where variance right. or you know statistical swings in the result is what's expected. And so it's not like when they come back having lost, that's a red flag. It's not a red flag at all. In fact, if they only come back having won, then something weird is happening like <laughs> that. It can't
0: right. work that yeah. way and it doesn't. And what, what, what's the amount of money-ish that you're talking about here when you see large sums?
1: Um, well,
0: cash. so the, I mean
1: the people who are really caring the most are, are the big players. The, the way our plays were structured typically involved multiple counters and one big player. And the big player is the only one who's placing the dramatic bets. Counters sit at separate tables, essentially playing table minimum. So the counters, you know, don't have huge amounts of money. They might each have a couple of thousand dollars. Um, The big player will have definitely tens of thousands. I mean, depending on the type of session you're going into, it would be, there would have to be some reason why you would walk into a casino with less than 30 grand. That would, some, some, Logistical thing that caused you to want to put a cap on what might happen in the session. So normally thirty, forty thousand dollars, something like this in cash, physically on your person. So it has to be tucked away in various places on your body where it can't easily, you know, fall onto the floor
0: and get lost. Um, um, and now just one understand. So just now this money comes from basically people on the team based on your seniority, you get to invest in the bank role that you guys are using to kind of multiply and make more money, correct? That's
1: exactly right. And there and, was – yes, sorry, go
0: uh, ahead. I just want to see if I get this correct. So, in that money, so that money consists of both invested money. Is there a little bit of like that Amish bread kind of a thing where the previous bankroll, there's a little bit of money left over from that that you used to start this bankroll? Or is it all invested money and then you split everything up when the session's over?
1: The way we structured our banks was that
0: they broke – each trip, which would typically
1: be like one long weekend, like five days or so, sometimes they were longer than that, like, like a 10 day trip would be a long trip for us. And that was it. And at the end of the trip, the bankroll was broken up, everybody took their cutback, or what was left of their bankroll if they had a losing trip. And, uh, you know, we got together again in a couple of weeks and did it all over again. There was no official thing that lingered from trip to trip.
0: Got it. And that percentage is based on the amount that you put in your time at the table, stuff like that, like your hours you put in at the table. There's a whole like comp I assume there's a whole algorithm and how you got paid out. But it that was That's pretty right. transparent, right.
1: right? Yeah, it was. It was totally transparent and everybody knew what everybody else sort of what everybody else's interests were in the in the bank. Transparency was important in the same way that it's important with with players being transparent with what they're doing and what their results are. Um, the way it was structured, investing was, it was highly desirable um, at, at the maximum, sort of at the high point of the team. We were organizing these trips with like 50 people on them, um, each of whom would generate some non-trivial number of hours in the casino and trips with that number of hours. Solo card counters, if any of them happen to listen to this, their jaws are on the floor right now because be a solo player is to just be in the face of variance all the time. You can't get out of it. You just have to experience. It. Sometimes you're going to lose for, you know, months, and that's just how it is. These trips with like 50 players active, presumably all competent card counters, each of them getting you know 10 or 20 hours in the course of a long weekend. Those trips are very rarely going to lose and so investing in them is a highly desirable thing and so one of the more complicated and significant parts of the overall structure was was the mechanism by which people's investment rates were determined because you you know if you were forward thinking you wanted to throw as much money in as you could basically
0: and and so the so that's how the bankroll starts. Now, just I'm going to give a brief summary and then you you fill in the gaps where where I'm wrong here. So basically, I didn't know there were 50 people. That's quite a lot of people to manage, but those are those rare,
1: but that was the peak. But yeah, go ahead.
0: Okay. Okay. So there so you could have you could have large groups. Um but basically a session consisted of, if I'm getting this correct, there were four positions. There's a counter so basically a guy, a spotter, I guess is the official term. And and you describe it as the entry-level position, but I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, coming in from the top as a gorilla, and I'll explain that in a second, could also be an entry-level position. Uh, hold that thought because I want to I come back to, and get your answer to that. But really quickly, there's a spotter, so basically a guy who's counting the cards and f- in rudimentary terms, finding out when the count is favorable to large bets, so that the percent, the, the chance of you winning will go up significantly. The then there's a controller who basically will take that count, which is a rudimentary count, and figure out the exact, basically the favorability of the deck by how many cards are left by guesstimating uh, how many you know decks are in a shoe, which is how many decks that they use to to play blackjack six eight one whatever it is. And then he will control the gorilla, who is basically just a big better who comes in and bets lots of money. They come in in the middle of the shoe, which is important. Um, and then there's a then there's a betting BP, and I assume BP meant betting person or betting player. And those guys are also counting and betting as well. So there's lots of people counting cards, hmm. also be- and everyone's betting at the same time. Like you said, table minimum essentially waiting for favorable moments, and that's when you guys would spring into action. Is that pretty close?
1: Yeah, that's very okay.
0: close. Okay, great. Um, well, that's 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 all we needed to talk about that. <laughs> that's the end of that. Now, so let's go back to, the, to what I said. So when you kind of, because you mentioned the book, you kind of came in as a spotter, which is a rudimentary counter, and you're essentially just counting, offsetting crappy cards with good cards and then telling – the next level up that the count, there's a lot of good cards in this deck, right? Yes. So that's the entry level. But could you also come in from the top? And like me, like I'm you know, just some idiot off the street, but I can act like I'm a big shot and just throw money down as a gorilla. So to sp- that's the name of the, the position, which is basically just a guy who bets large and has to seem like a crazy guy who would be betting in the middle of shoes on random whims, You know, and not being told that it's precise moments to come in, you have to make it look completely random. Could you also come in at that level as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. Um, So there's two ways in. And essentially, which is kind of interesting about this system, is that as you mentioned, you know, when you have these security systems running around, you got kind of made early on as a counter. Um, But because being a counter, if they know your face, Um, it's no good and you have to kind of lay low. But if you come in as a gorilla, the key moment for these large bettors is that their name is clean, which I found this to be very interesting. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Right. So it is not possible to play high stakes blackjack without giving a name um, in the current legal and regulatory environment. Um, There's anti-money laundering laws in the United States that require casinos specifically to, get a name and social security number of people who engage in cash transactions exceeding ten thousand dollars on a single day or a single 24-hour period Um, so when you are playing for the stakes that we were playing you're going to buy in for more than ten thousand almost every time you play i mean on rare occasions you'll run obscenely lucky and like win your first bets and never look back but more often than not you're you're buying in for at least 10 grand Um, that means you have to you have to give correct information you can't um at, at that point you can when you walk in off the street you can say my name is you know joe schmoe i'm here to bet and um you, they might not like it but there's nothing unlawful about that but deliberately giving false information at the time mm-hmm. that the casino is uh requesting it for this purpose like a fake id or something uh could be a, a could be a, a a federal crime um for violating this any any money laundering So you basically have to give your correct name and your social security number. And once they have that, even using the primitive computers of the year 2000 or 2001, uh, it's very easy for them to run it against a a list of undesirables and find out if it's really you or not. And that's the Mm -hmm. easiest way for casinos to solve their card counting problem because they don't actually have to know anything or analyze anything. They just see you're on the list, he's out, and throw you out right then. And so part of what we did really effectively as a team was that we always had a pipeline of new people with genuinely clean names and real social security numbers attached to them who were prepared to come in for a trip or maybe a couple trips if they ran lucky with the way their heat developed and um, place those large bets.
0: And heat is – we didn't really talk about that, but heat is basically how much you're being observed by the casino. And basically it's like a meter from like 1 to 10, how close they are to kicking you out essentially, right? Okay, um, so basically, depending on how much you know heat you generate, um, you make a good or bad gorilla. Essentially, uh, and what's what's kind of cool about this is, as I was reading it, I realized like you, let's say, let's take the axe first for for example, right? So you came in as a counter, you eventually became a controller, and I think the the essential pipeline from that is you could be a counting BP, which means you can count the cards you can kind of guesstimate when it's when the it's a good shoe very favorable you can bet a lot of money because you have money with you as well but at some point you're going to get made as a counter but then you can come in and have a second life essentially as a gorilla where your name is clean and then you can make the large bets and whatever um once your name is not clean anymore once they once they run it in the database they know you're part of a group and you've also ran the whole course of being a counter and your flyers and name your faces everywhere are you kind of out of a job at that point because every casino knows both who you your real name and what you look like and that you're kind of hot
1: this was obviously a, a primary organizational managerial challenge for the team because in order to play good blackjack you must generate heat there's there's no way. That I know of to avoid that. I'm sure there are clever people out there who have found ways that I've never thought about, but they haven't told me what those ways are. So you're going to generate heat if you're playing the way you should be playing. And so as managers need to find a way to motivate people to play in that exact style, knowing full well that they're going to get heat, they're going to get fired, they're going to get 86 from multiple places. And you have to have people willing, it's sort of a kamikaze behavior, So you have to incentivize people to undertake that kamikaze behavior. There has to be some path forward for them. And that was one of the challenges that the team managers always um, face. But the, the general guideline was that nobody would be left out for heat reasons. They would always find a way to make it work. And the truth is that, um, you know, when you're on an immediate flyer in a particular region, and your, na- your face is on the top of like the pile in all the surveillance rooms or it's even sitting on the podium in the pit, you're not going to have a productive trip. <laughs> but <laughs> right, um, yeah. casinos are busy and people come through all the time. And part of the business model is based on churn because they're essentially breaking people. And so they, they are in the business of bringing in new people to break. Um, so it's it's the norm for there to be people coming through all the time, and what that means is that with even just a little bit of creativity, even a hot people can find ways of continuing to play uh, after they've been, you know, widely circulated on casino information networks. And, uh, and then,
0: I'm in, yeah. Oh, just just to be clear, so flying is basically when like Griffin or some other organization has your physically has your name on a flyer like a wanted poster, yes. and eighty six is when you get kicked out. Um, and I think you even double it and triple it based on how many times you've <laughs> exactly. been kicked out. Um, but, but that's kind of the, the things there. Um, and I imagine the incentive in, incentive would be that you still get to bankroll a trip then, right? I mean, that would be uh,
1: conceivably, yes. Although you should be involved in some productive capacity. So right, usually, usually it was always possible to at least be a spotter, um, mm. you know, and maybe you couldn't go on a particular trip to a particular location at a particular time, but you could hit that same location, you know, three months later when you hadn't just fired there or, or
0: whatever. Sense. You talk about heat. Generating heat is a big deal, and that's kind of like the driving force, the drama of the of the story. So uh, I, I highly recommend reading this book. It's Repeat Until Rich the a card a professional card counter chronicles the blackjack wars available everywhere it's a great book highly recommend it um do you still get the itch every now and again Can I ask that? <laughs> um you know i uh every once in a while i find myself in
1: front of a blackjack table where i have reason to think i have an edge and i'm certainly yeah. not going to fail to bet when that
0: situation arises <laughs> right you get the sweats get the the jimmy leg and everything like that yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> well, it's, it's, a great book. Uh, so how can people get in touch with you? How can they find the book? Where, where are you? Uh, we've already covered YouTube. It's ASDF. ASDF. <laughs> where where <laughs> I, else can I, people find you? I still haven't found that by
1: the way. I'll do it later. I've been sitting here. I can't get it, but oh, uh, in it case, you. my lost YouTube channel. Thank you. <laughs> um, they can, uh, my website is axlerad.net. The book repeat until it reaches on Amazon, um, and available, uh, at, at bookstores, you can you can if you're committed to uh, providing business to a local bookseller, just come to my website and there's a button you can click to have it shipped to your local bookseller, so you can give them the business um, instead of Amazon if you'd like to do that. Um, the audio book is coming out this year from Blackstone Blackstone mm. Publishing, um, so that will be out sometime in the coming months, and it is narrated by myself.
0: Oh, so you you do the narration? Oh, that's great. I did. Okay, that's fun. Um, do you Facebook, Twitter, any of that stuff, social media?
1: Very little. I have a new Twitter account from which I've never tweeted. I don't know if I will.
0: <laughs> I, I abhor all these things. I'm not on Facebook. Well, just do me. I will, I'm going to tweet out about this interview. If you could just, have as your first tweet, be my re- retweeting my tweet, I would I really appreciate that, and I will mark that as a, as a record <laughs> moment. I love it. That might be my only tweet ever, but I'm going to do it. You have, you have my work. All right, all right. I'm holding you to it, um, Josh Axelrad, the Axe Mac. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Dan. It was a, it was a pleasure. It was fun. Uh, and I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to FascinatingNouns.com to learn more about this episode, to meet the guest, and to listen to all the other episodes. You can listen to them for free. Go to the episode link at the top of the page and follow the show on social media. If you scroll to the bottom, you can find links to the show's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Pinterest links all at the bottom of the page. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show. Link for that at the bottom as well. We got Google Play, TuneIn, iTunes, and Stitcher. Never miss an episode. And if you like this show, check out the newsletter. You can learn all about this and other shows that I do, including my most recent fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies where I take a team of experts and explain pop culture technology and how to make it in real life. We just did Acme's Portable Holes. We've done the Everlasting Gobstopper, the Mr. Fusion from Back to the Future, all kinds of stuff. FGGBT.com That's FGGBT.com One more time, FGGBT.com If you like that show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to check it out. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.